Hello and welcome to the Stacy's Goodbye Cocktails episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of what is an extremely bittersweet week here, Shay Slate Money. I am Felix Salmon of Axios, and the good news is that I am joined by Emily Peck of Axios. Dun, dun, dun. Emily, you've you've come on board. You're going to be writing the markets newsletter that comes out every weekday with another new hire, uh, Matt Phillips, who's also amazing. How's it going? Yes. Well, today was my fifth day. It's been going great so far. Um, I've written a few things. I can put the links in the show notes or we can wait and you can just subscribe to Axios Markets, which, as Felix said, comes out every day. And I'm co-writing it with um, Matt Phillips starting probably in a, another week. We need to do a lot of training at Axios. Felix, I don't know about that. Um, like, yeah, you have to, you have to learn how training. to use bullet points. Yes, I have to learn how to be smart. Um, That's a skill. But smart yeah, it's really exciting. So I hope everyone will keep following me. So that's the good news. The terrible news is that this is our very last week with Stacey Marie Ishmael. Stacey, what is going on? I have a job that I have to do. <laughs> <laughs> and crypto is, there's, it's very busy and all-consuming. And I am unfortunately not going to be able to hang out with two of my favorite people and talk about the, the biggest markets and finance news of the day. So, yeah. <laughs> This is this is terrible news, and I am still kind of in denial, and I'm not happy about this. But we are going to try and squeeze you for whatever value we can this last week. We're going to talk about <laughs> cocktails, because we're all going to go off and get drunk after this, to drown our sorrows about Stacey leaving. We're going to talk about cocktails and whether it's a good idea for restaurants to be able to sell them to go. We are going to talk about covid tests and how much they cost and to kick us off we are going to because it's been a little while since we've had a proper newsy episode we're going to talk about the elizabeth holmes verdict and what that says about silicon valley we also of course because this is a podcast full of journalists are going to talk about the new york times buying the athletic in slate plus so all of that is coming up on slate money when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stacy, this is your show. You get you get to just say what you're talking about, and we just go along. We go along with the ride. What do you want to talk about first? I think we should do Theranos first. Theranos first. Okay, so Sorry. Theranos first. Elizabeth Holmes is going to jail. This seems almost certain, although the guilty verdict will certainly be appealed. There were 11 counts against Elizabeth Holmes, and she was convicted on merely four of them. Does that mean she's mostly innocent? Well, each separate count is a 20-year max sentence, so no. <laughs> but it is interesting, the difference between um, the counts that counted and the counts that didn't count. A lot of counting there. <laughs> One! <laughs> One! <laughs> <laughs> 
When people talk about um, why Theranos was worse than other startups that exaggerate, everyone would always say, because real people were involved and patients got ripped off. Um, they got b- blood test the results that were incorrect and all that. But when it came time for the jury to decide the verdict, the counts regarding patients getting um, and fraud, those were the ones she was found not guilty. And it was the investor counts. Yeah, there was one woman who was told that she had HIV and they were like, yeah, that was bad, but we couldn't really see beyond a reasonable doubt that that was specifically Elizabeth Holmes's fault rather than the system. We're not going to visit the sins of the entire company on the CEO, even though she clearly ran the company very sort of micromanager really, if that's the word. The counts against the patients were thrown out and then there was a hung jury. So there were three different classes of count, I guess you would say. The ones against the ones about defrauding, defrauding patients, those she was found not guilty of. Then there was a second class of charges of defrauding investors. And roughly half of those she was found guilty, and half of those there was a hung jury. And this was fascinating to me that basically the early stage investors, there was a hung jury. The the jury, there were a few people in the jury, um, a minority, but some, who said, look. This is what early stage investors do is they take bets on crazy risky companies. And this turns out to be a crazy risky company and their um, money went to zero. And I'm not going to speak for the jurors, but I can speak for myself and say, like, on some level, those investors were, you know, fueling the company rather than being defrauded by the company. They were they were accomplices in some way. I'm not saying they knew that they were doing anything bad, but the much more seemingly slam dunk case against her, which she was found guilty of, was the later stage investors who poured hundreds of millions of dollars um, into the company based on financials and documents that they were given that were simply false. And at that point, they were like, yeah, you're just like taking poor Betsy DeVos's money and you're going to jail. That's the thing, right? It's like, oh, Betsy DeVos is the person who gets justice in all this. That is like, <laughs> it doesn't seem. Well, just she, I, I don't on know. This face. is a criminal trial, right? So this isn't the <laughs> right. trial where Be- Betsy DeVos yeah. gets her money back. She doesn't get her money back, but still, it just. I think what it is is everyone agrees that this Theranos fraud was really bad because at the end of the day, it was patients who were ripped off. But it's harder to prove that. And the damages there are are kind of smaller, even though it's life and death. Money is what counts in a case like this. So even though the reason it was bad was because of the real people involved, at the end of the day, it's like the investors, it's the counts of fraud against investors that are sort of like easier to get through. You know what I mean? The reason they were those charges, she was found guilty on those charges is just because those are the ones that could stick. I guess the question is, like, if she had been running a SaaS company, you know, like if she had been running a company that claimed to be making lots of money by selling software to enterprises, and it turned out she was making up those those numbers, and then the whole thing implodes, and then, like, at that point, does the government even bother to go ahead with a criminal prosecution? And if they do, does a jury find find that person guilty? Or do you need this human ele- element to even get the criminal po- prosecution in the first place? Exactly. That is what I'm saying. You needed the human element to get the criminal prosecution. Right, Stacey? I think, I mean, I think 
the whole point of having a jury trial is the human element, right? You're you're trying to argue for people being affected here. We could talk about another jury trial that involves a lot of human elements, but I think this is <laughs> this is the one that is material. The bigger picture, I'm curious, um, Stacy and Felix, what you think. The bigger picture on like tech companies aren't going to exaggerate, startups aren't going to exaggerate anymore. And this is a lesson. Investors will have learned a lesson from this. I feel like they're not going to learn a lesson from this. Silicon Valley Twitter, insofar as, you know, there's any kind of consensus on Twitter, is very much taking the side of, this was never a Silicon Valley company. Yeah, yeah. Despite, despite the fact that if you are blocked by certain VCs, it is because you ever in your life said anything vaguely critical about either of Elizabeth Holmes or Theranos. Like, come on. <laughs> it's just the Stanford Mafia closed ranks around Holmes and Theranos very early on, whether it was a Silicon Valley company or not. And there were definitely, um, you know, Tim Traper, and there were definitely Silicon Valley investors on the cap table. Um, and the way that, you know, Inc. Magazine put her on the cover, calling her the next Steve Jobs, I don't think they were the only person to do that. She had that black turtleneck. The whole thing quacked like a Silicon Valley, looked like a Silicon Valley. Like, she was really, um, you know trying to make those comparisons as as salient as she possibly could. So it was a Silicon Valley company, and it is part of the culture of Silicon Valley to be, how to put this, like... Move fast and break To things. always be saying that you are crushing it, even when you are not crushing it. Because apparently you can never say, oh, yeah, we're going through a hard time right now. That's It's... it's that culture I don't think is going to change anytime soon, guilty verdict or no guilty verdict. Yeah, and, and Matt Levine pointed this out too, and maybe other people, like he said Theranos raised a lot of money from investors who didn't do too much due diligence because the world was awash in money and investors got careless. And this was before now, which you could say the same thing. The world is awash in money and investors When was the last time the world was not awash <laughs> with money i mean like it's been a while it's been a minute <laughs> there's a lot of there's money lot of chasing money. investments right now so like this isn't I, I think that's totally right like nothing has changed like this was this changes nothing this verdict it was i mean very in a weird way in a weird way i think that she kind of hit at exactly the wrong time like right now the world is so awash with money that she wouldn't even need to lie yeah. to raise you would just money. be like Right. Making it rain. <laughs> she she would just be like, I can I'm going to change the world. I'm pre-revenue, but I'm going to change the world. And and she would spec with a hundred billion dollar valuation and everyone would be like, Wow, this is amazing. Now you don't need to lie. Back then there was slightly less money sloshing around. So if you wanted to get the divorces to to to, to you know invest with you, you needed to lie and then you go to prison. And also now there's this trend, and Felix, you'll cut me off, I'm sure, if I'm saying something uninformed, but there's this trend in VC. I think it's the Tiger Capital model where they just like move really fast with investments. Like they're looking less at companies than ever before, and the money's just flowing. Like the trend is in the opposite direction, not more deep. Yeah, there's yeah, less, less totally. I'm, 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 I don't know. Like, uh, does the fact that Tiger moves so much faster mean that they are doing less due diligence or does it just mean they're moving faster? They're like 
they have a hedge fund metabolism rather than the VC metabolism. You know, this right? is, the VCs have this kind of multi-decade time horizon. So they say, unless you're yeah. a media company. Um, but I want to... Exactly. <laughs> I want to... That's. I think that's a, such a super interesting point because time spent does not always correlate with intelligent analysis, as it were, right? And like I think about this in the context of job interviews. Like It's not at all the case that being dragged through 50 hours of interviews over four months is necessarily going to give you a slam-dunk candidate versus somebody being like, you seem great, start tomorrow. And I, I do wonder, in this environment where there's so much money and there's so much complexity, like what does useful due diligence actually look like anymore? Yeah, especially when you're talking you know, Tiger-style investments where it's basically like, we see the product, we see the potential, we see the founder, there's no revenue here. So let, are we going to take a punt on this or are we not? Like, um, you know, certainly with, with later stage stuff, like we, was, like we saw with Theranos, you had various of the family offices and investors who put money into Theranos saying like, we did actually ask for more information and Elizabeth Holmes refused to give it to us. And that is them trying to do due diligence, but ultimately saying, well, I guess we want to make this investment. So we're going to give, make, make the investment, even if you don't give us the information. But yeah, I think the later and the more mature the company is, you know, like once it's post revenue, then you probably do want to go in there and make sure those revenues are real. Get some kind of third party accountant, something, you know? I mean, with in terms of due diligence, there was one woman, I think, who testified at the trial who was like, we didn't ask more questions because we didn't want to make Elizabeth angry at us, which just seems like I don't I don't do due diligence for a living. So I mean I kind of do, but because reporting, but um that's that seems like bad due diligence. We don't want to ask a question because it's going to make It also goes back the to the, the point about the Silicon Valley. Nobody likes negativity, right? There, There is this sort of fetishization of uplifting, positive, support, constructive, that is the reason that Silicon Valley is so adversarial to any kind of non-frothy ink magazine. Because merely the fact of asking a question about like how, on what basis are you making this claim is interpreted as a personal attack in a way that I, I have, when I was working there, I just found wild. It's a very much a passive aggressive West Coast mentality. drama. <laughs> how dare you question us? But, but it's also like, to be clear about this, this is also the mentality that has driven the entire SPAC market, right? Like, no one is really able to properly diligence the companies that are going public via SPAC. The detailed accounting that you normally have to get in an S1 when a company goes public just isn't there in a SPAC most of the time. Sometimes it is, most of the time it isn't. And this kind of like, I'm just going to take a punt on a story is something that, you know, the SEC, I think Gary Gensler has come out quite explicitly and said like, no, there shouldn't be a double standard here. That if we hold companies to a high standard when they go public via IPO, we should hold companies to the same standard if they go public via SPAC. And, and this SPAC loophole is, you know, especially post this Theranos verdict, like the Theranos verdict reminds us of how dangerous it is to invest in a story. Yeah. Oh, I have one more thing I wanted to say about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. She has made it bad out there for women, <laughs> especially and wear black turtlenecks. Found startups and raise money. <laughs> well, black turtlenecks or not, 
um, there was a good piece in the Times months ago, I think, where, you know, women who are trying to raise money out there in Silicon Valley are sort of tainted with the Elizabeth Holmes stink now. I think it, it, she has made it a little bit harder um, for women to raise money because there's an association. And also, she had, on the flip side, she's kind of destroyed well, the notion okay, of the girl two things. boss. Which is girl fine. bosses destroyed the notion of the girl boss. And the, you know, if, if we go back to the reporting about what happened at Away yeah. and you know the luggage company and various other things like that. But I, I do want to comment on something. The no, women in Silicon Valley have always had a harder time raising money like just as a baseline i remember when we talked about this several episodes ago somebody was like is it really true i was like my dude yes <laughs> it is very true that if you look at both the amount of attempted round you know amounts of attempted investments that folks have to make and the size of the rounds they end up raising the profile of the investors that tend to finally put money into women it's a whole different ball game out there but over and above that I don't know if the Elizabeth Holmes effect will be to be people like writing off women completely or if they're just like, see, we told you she was an outlier anyway. We're just going to continue not investing in women. Right. I, like, I don't know if there was this moment in which she flipped the narrative in the other direction in a way that suddenly made it easier for blonde, black, turtleneck wearing women to raise money. And so I'm not sure that it's flipping back the other way where it's suddenly more difficult again, as opposed to just like status quo has been maintained because she was always exceptional. Like, you don't have, like, a casual advisor in the form of Kissinger um, in, in terms of your average startup trying to raise money this way. I, I would think it's a little worse, probably. What, worse, worse than, like, homes at a height or worse than pre-homes? Worse than pre-homes. Maybe homes at a height made things incrementally a little bit better and that there was more attention. Like, oh, look, women can do it, too. And, like benefit of the doubt just for a smidge more and now i think it's gone a smidge under where it started if that makes any sense i have no faith in humanity so i don't <laughs> i don't think it well, yeah, it's been terrible pretty, pretty all much. along says Stacey. um as you can see by the way the 2022 is going so far <laughs> so. also maybe not i mean maybe i'm wrong also because she did have her homies come to the trial like you you saw those she pictures. still has a fan base for sure she has fans like there are inst there's tiktoks of course and and instagram posts where people are are still kind of a few a few people and maybe it's a joke i don't know are, are fangirling this i mean good you know people people need role models and i hope eventually silicon valley gives them like a better <laughs> range to choose from <laughs> it's just like that's the problem with these exceptional examples if you're going to pick a silicon valley ceo as your role model like that's never a Great place I, it's, to start. it's not an amazing pool, is, is what I will say, from a humanity perspective. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. What's up next, Daisy? Uh, so continuing the carnival of grimness, uh, let's talk about rapid test pricing. <laughs> oh, yes. This, by the way, is a global thing. I can say as someone who's 
in you know on the other side of the atlantic ocean right now right now i'm in ireland up until a few days ago i was in england this whole there's there's this sort of meme that has been going around twitter which basically says i can't believe how expensive and difficult it is to get rapid tests in america given how in england you can get a pack of seven for free just by like pressing a button on the internet yeah in theory in practice, I can tell you as someone who is desperately running around London trying to get a pack of seven for free, it is pretty hard even in London um, or even in England. But yes, in principle, you can. Whereas for reasons I do not understand, the American government, for all that it's willing to pour huge numbers of billions of dollars into trying to deal with this COVID pandemic, a broad, like everyone just test yourself all the time strategy, which seems like a really smart thing to do has never been on the list. And on top of that, they've only approved two different tests, even though there are lots that work. And so it's incredibly hard for Americans to get tests. And they're changing hands for what, like $75, $80 for two? Yes. They're being sold on like the secondary black market for rapid tests by people who are getting them for free and, you know, from their employers. And it's just, but the thing is, the idea that you could have ever gotten a rapid test for $14.98 or whatever the agreed number was, was wild to me. Like I, I have never seen a rapid test either in stock in Walmart for that price or available from CVS or elsewhere for anything less than 28 bucks. I, I got one online for that 14 Okay. Emily's bragging. <laughs> Okay, I have probably a horrendous take, but here I go. What if... <laughs> <laughs> What's your bad take, so, Emily? Okay, well, so um, Dr. Fauci, I think this week said it's like time to stop focusing on case counts. Like Omicron is just out there. Everyone's getting sick. It's move on from counting cases. What if it's also time to just like, if you're very sick, you go to the doctor and you get a test. And if you're not very sick, you just like, do what you do if you would get a cold or the flu. You just stay home until you feel better. Like, and don't worry about the But people the don't stay home. People, like, the, I, every year that I have worked in the U.S., every flu season, it's always like, somebody's like, oh, I just have the flu. Hacking <laughs> yeah. cough in no, the that's office. that's real. <laughs> or, and people don't have paid sick leave. And, you know, and the thing with rapid tests is, even if you can get a rapid test, there are employers out there that are like, we're not going to allow you to take time off, paid or unpaid, unless you have official documentation in the form of PCR from that doctor, assuming you have a primary care doctor in the first place. So it's like, if we had the infrastructure and the, the kind of the cultural sensibility towards work that people would in fact stay home, that would be amazing. Yeah, we don't. I mean, I just feel like... <laughs> We don't. Walmart just cut sick days. Um, COVID, it's COVID sick day policy. They they halved it. I expect other companies will soon follow suit. It's the U.S. We don't have paid sick leave. We have a crazy work culture, and we have something that's moving from being a pandemic to being an endemic thing. Endemic. So, like, I don't yeah. know. I feel like why even fight it? I don't. So I mean, wait, this is uh, the worst uh, take. I've are ever you had. saying? It, this I feel like this definitely counts as a bad take. I mean, I would I would put that out there. I mean, because just like you know, it. are you basically it's saying that we should stop having a public health mindset about COVID and just and just and no longer care about might I be infectious to others and like just that should not be part of how we think. I mean, the U.S. went all in on a vaccine strategy. We have good vaccines. If you're mm. boosted. 
and you get this illness right now, this variant, you're probably going to be okay. I probably think- meaning like more than 50%. Yes. But like given the numbers of people who are getting COVID right now, you know, even if it's 5% of boosted people having like having to get hospitalized, that's still a lot of people. And there are definitely boosted people who are having very, very hard, hard times of things and going to hospital. <sighs> Yeah, maybe I'm saying like it's kind of too late to fix this testing issue. By the time like the Biden administration said they were sending out <clears throat> 500,000 tests, 500 million, sorry, tests. I mean, by the time Omicron, I just think it's too late to do the testing the testing way. Like the US is not going to be able to pull it off. Like just do something else. Here's the thing though. <laughs> One of the things that I have become obsessed with is the notion that Omicron is the last variant. Because all of these policies, all of these, like, you can go back after five days, et cetera, et cetera, is sort of predicated on the idea that because Omicron is, quote unquote, mild, um, which we could talk about to Felix's point, this is this is this is the policy henceforth. We don't know if we're going to get like totally Delta-esque screwed again, where the next variant that comes out is like devastating, both highly transmissible and contagious, even if you are boosted and has really severe outcomes. And I think to your point, Emily, like the big challenge for me is the notion of endemicity, I can't pronounce that word, is being based on a current set of circumstances rather than us thinking about if actually we were looking worst case scenario at this thing, what would we have to be doing? And again, I have no faith in humanity. So you know, I'm like, I'm prepared for for whatever. But I'm also as a person with a slew of chronic illnesses, aware that the definition of mild is really variable, right? And like we we're kind of setting up one, we don't know enough about long COVID for people who are dealing with it. And two, I, with my complete lack of an upper respiratory system, um, if I even if I get a mild case of COVID, my outcomes might still be way worse than somebody else's. And to Felix's point, extrapolating that over millions is is hard. And let's let's not forget that there is still a really bad pandemic of the delta variant happening in america right now if you get covid you cannot be sure that you're getting omicron there's a lot of delta still going right. around maybe it was a bad take yeah <laughs> i mean the, the good take is like flood this flood the market with tests make sure they're cheap and readily available that's not the world we're living in right now there is a shortage of but tests that that is that is the that is the world that many people do live in you know the uk government is highly incompetent but it's more or less the world that the uk lives in and various other countries and it's an entirely possible world and it's a world that you know the biden administration has been in power for a year now they've had a year to get up on this people have been saying for a year can you guys just make tests free and readily available can you make them available in packs of seven rather than packs of two which is like an obvious thing just basically have make them be things that are lying around in everyone's house at all times and they've had a year to get there and they've managed to get basically zero percent of the way there and that seems insane to me and that is the root cause of why we are now seeing all of this profiteering and everything else that it they're just you know plus uh Soupson of FDA incompetence in the way that the FDA is just like <laughs> is being terrible in approving new tests because they're like the test must reach must tick a million different boxes. No, it mustn't. It has to just you know detect COVID 
Although, you know, if if I wanted to do a bad take here, my bad take would be with Omicron in particular, tests are much less useful than they have been here on too. That, that people are testing pe- people are <laughs> testing negative long after they've developed symptoms, long after they've been infectious on the rapid tests and you're like the only the only utility at some for, for many many people getting covid right now, the only utility for rapid test is to test out. It's like once you've had COVID, how do you know that you're no longer infectious? Well, that, if you test negative on a rapid test, that's a very good sign you're no longer infectious. But like to test whether you're infectious or whether you have COVID, like people have like half recovered from their symptoms by the time they finally test positive. So can the market solve this problem? Like remember when we couldn't find hand sanitizer and now like I can't sneeze without finding hand sanitizer? <laughs> like can... I mean, there's there's big demand for these tests. Like, this is America. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't this happen quicker? What's the holdback? Yeah, what, is it, like is it that, FDA? that is a good question. Why Abbott in particular hasn't been making 10, 20, 50 times as many tests as it has it defeats me. I don't understand it. Oh, I thought you would explain it. <laughs> no, Stacey will. Stacey, it's your last episode. Explain it to us. A couple of things. One is I remember reading a New York Times story a couple of months ago and being absolutely incensed by the reporting that Abbott had made a bunch of tests. And then because there was insufficient demand for them, they destroyed a bunch of them and laid off, you know, a slew of people who were making those tests. And then those people were like, okay, cool, we're out of a job. Abbott didn't give them any kind of reasonable severance or anything else. They went and they worked at other places. And so now they're having to like rehire a ton of people into these places in a much more competitive wage environment than had been true when they were making those decisions. Uh, So, and then you just have like pure production constraints, right? Which is like, even if you hire all of those people up, can you, even if you're running your your people and your machines and your factories 24-7, actually get to the state of output from zero versus if we had been stockpiling over time, plus what you already mentioned about the lack of FDA approvals for alternatives. Like, I, I don't think you can bottleneck right. one I mean, company. like, the, I, I have to say, the the tests that everyone takes when you take a test in the UK are not made in the UK. They're all made in China, right? And there's nothing wrong with the tests that are made in China. It just seems to be that the FDA has, you know, difficulties approving tests that are made in China. So if I'm Joe Biden, I'm calling the FDA and I'm like, let's go. Let's get these Chinese tests over here. Yeah, but but if you're Joe Biden, you're also like, buy American. Well, that's just dumb. (laughs) Is that what Joe Biden says? That's a great Joe Biden impression. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. I like, I'm rendered speechless. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that. But I'm safe and what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts.
Can we talk about the fact that New York might once again have to-go cocktails? Because this is extremely relevant to my I, I was advised by a, by one of the world's foremost nurses once, and I'm not even joking about this. She really is one of the world's foremost nurses, that if you do have a sore throat, then drinking brown liquor or some kind of like, you know, Manhattan or old fashioned or something like that is a really good idea because it opens up the capillaries and yeah, it's, it's good for you. <laughs> Look, every Caribbean grandmother is convinced that if you are unwell, you should drink like a shot of scotch <laughs> or whiskey or, or maybe even know, something. Rum. Yeah. Uh, rum. Exactly. Um, hot rum, you know, splash of ginger ale. Ginger ale is the, also the thing that solves everything. But I have not been able to figure out, other than the, you know, classic puritanical regulate alcohol out of existence, which there are public health merits to, why don't more states embrace to-go cocktails? Like, I mean, what it's is like, the, it isn't, who is isn't the lobbying that like group? what New Orleans is based on? That is, yeah, New yeah. Orleans runs on to-go cocktails. And I feel like... <laughs> um, <clears throat> I mean, in if you live somewhere where there's a lot of driving and to-go cocktails are a thing, I just feel like it's a recipe for disaster. Like people are driving around New Orleans with like alcohol slushies and cups. Well, most people are walking around New Orleans. But <laughs> or in Louisiana anyway. I, I don't know. I'm a little... Louisiana, I, I don't yes. love to-go cocktails. But they sell, they sell alcohol at, at gas stations. Yeah, like dry, so it's, it's drive like through cocktails, to-go cocktails uh, problem. Like, feel That's like a bad idea to me. Nuts. Yeah, it's bad, I, I agree. really bad. <laughs> and you're not supposed to have open containers in your car, even if the container is available. So there is some nod in the direction of your breaking laws that exist. But what is the, you know, who is the group that's like, no, if you want a cocktail, you have to go into a bar. The retailers, <laughs> alcohol retailers is the people, right? It's always a fight between the restaurants and the retailers. But a to-go cocktail is so much more expensive than making it yourself. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> as a person who spent you know my my pandemic hobby was not sourdough baking it was like pretentious cocktail making it's a good it's a good pandemic nice. hobby i have to admit i feel like i mean it's a good pandemic policy to have to go cocktails so people don't sit in bars but like more broadly pulling out i don't know if it's such a great policy i mean people when people are drunk they do so many dumb things like i don't think you can have a to-go cocktail policy in in an area where you have like lax gun regulations, like that's just a cock a cocktail <laughs> okay, of death, basically. Like, <laughs> all right, uh, Texas has a to go <laughs> alcohol policy during the pandemic, and also a little thing known as mostly the chillest gun regulations out there. <laughs> it's like here's um, a margarita, but and I, a handgun. <laughs> so, so in the Lower East Side, we have these things now, which are axe throwing bars, where you can like. Drink oh cocktails please, and throw please axes. Stop. Please stop. I'm like, no, these are two things that Guys, should not no. go back. Yeah, no, no. No, 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 no. But I mean, one of the reasons I've been thinking about this, and Emily, it actually relates to the idea of what's the difference between culture and legislation, is if you exist in a binge drinking culture, or you exist in a culture where like drinking and driving is normalized, or throwing <laughs> freaking axes while, Felix's culture, while drinking apparently. is normalized. You know, then anything you do that makes the accessibility of alcohol easier is like net mm -hmm. negative, right? Versus if you are somewhere where you are assuming that people are, you know, kind of outside of the range of, say, alcohol disorder, like able to make better decisions, then sure. And it's exactly the same set of policy considerations about like the legalization of marijuana 
and other types of drugs where I remember when I was in high school, I was writing an essay it was about like what are the pros and cons of of legal marijuana and all of the people on the con side was like everybody's suddenly gonna be smoking joints all day <laughs> it's the only thing that they're gonna be doing and for perhaps a percentage of people that might be true but in general greater accessibility does not always mean like widespread vice and death and destruction if the rest of your society is functioning at a re- in a reasonably normal I, way. I um I, you know what's weird is that I don't quite agree when it comes to alcohol. I think regulations around alcohol are really important and and tend to save lives like I guess that everyone always points to France and they're like, France is totally chill and everyone drinks wine and it's fine. But like, I think um, when they banned alcohol ads on TV there or something along those lines, like deaths went down, like drinking is like people can smoke pot all day and it's probably fine. Like they're not going to kill anyone else. But like alcohol is like a public alcohol is objectively bad for you. It's 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 a public health risk in a way that other things aren't, I think. I don't know why. So I'm maybe so that's the that. maybe that's the the public health reason to not allow to go cocktails. If they're to go, then they're that it's that much easier to imbibe a cocktail, which, as to to Stacey's point, is now hard. You either need to make it at home, which is hard, or you need to, you know, go through the whole rigmarole of ordering it and sitting down and having it served to you, and that is quite expensive if you want more than one. <laughs> And possibly fatal if you're unvaccinated. Yeah, and in the pandemic, the public health risk of sitting in a bar outweighs the public health risk of, like, having to go cocktails, but only in the pandemic. But, okay, so here's my my sort of um, synthesis here of, of like, how we managed to combine the, the testing public health conversation is that the reason it makes sense to do this in New York, to allow to go cocktails in New York is precisely because New York is one of the few places in America where a majority of the population is still uncomfortable walking Does into not a drive. bar and ordering a cocktail. <laughs> if you're okay with walking into a bar and ordering a cocktail, then the public health calculus says that's bad. You don't want to make it too easy. But if you're in this weird covid situation where most people are not okay walking into a bar and not ordering a cocktail then on some level you know we have a right to cocktails and we can't be expected to make them at home and so this is the only way we're going to get our cocktails yes we have a I right love to this. this is like felix's political position is <laughs> we have a we have a right life to liberty and what was the third title. one cocktails <laughs> <laughs> the, pu- the pursuit of spirits <laughs> That's perfect. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, numbers round, people. Stacy's going last, so I'll go first. 7% is the amount that the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust rose in 2021. Um, this is this thing that has been around for many years. It was created by my good friend Barry Silbert of Grayscale. He's your he's, good friend. We need to talk offline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've had we've had a few we've had multiple Bitcoin debates over the years, um, but anyway, um, Barry started this place called Grayscale, and he basically was the very first person to create a way of being able to buy Bitcoin on the stock exchange. And it's a bit of a kludge, and you have to pay him a whopping great management fee, and no, one, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. But anyway, it's listed on the stock exchange under the ticker symbol GBTC. 
and you basically buy um effectively an open-ended mutual fund you know where he holds a bunch of uh bitcoin and you buy into his fund and it's and his fund gained seven percent in 2021 it's meant to be a way to get bitcoin exposure for people who don't trust themselves to be able to hold bitcoin on their computer or whatever the price of bitcoin contrary wise rose 60 percent in 2021 this is a massive massive delta and and the way in which the crypto world has not been able to, you know, the 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 law of one price, the efficient markets hypothesis, that you know, all of this kind of stuff. Even in twenty twenty one, it we're so far away from that. It's bazonkers. Why would anyone invest with this guy when they? they I don't understand. Ah, uh, such a good question. Well, he does have how many billions under management? It's very. It's a tremendous amount of money. Um, that is, he is single handedly and through his various entities. You can make seven percent on like. Inflation-protected treasury bonds right now, I think. <laughs> I mean, you can make 7% on your average like crypto-staking yield yeah. product. So huh. Seems bad. There's a lot of other ways to get that level of exposure. Emily, what's your number? My number is 80 million. That is the approximate number of workers in the U.S. who would fall under the Biden administration's test or vax mandate. Um, talking about it because the Supreme Court, as we record right now on Friday, is considering if it will uphold this mandate or not. Um, and it's really anyone's guess. <laughs> it's not, I shouldn't even say mandate because the rule is you either employ employees at company, large companies either get vaccinated or submit to a weekly testing and wear masks. And if you work at home, you don't have to do it. If you work outside, you don't have to do it. If you work alone, you don't have to do it. So, I mean, to call it a mandate, that's like a very, that's how the Republicans like to call well, things. Well, there's a mandate in, in New York, right? And Citigroup has said they're going to start firing people next week who haven't been vaccinated. Uh-huh. And um, the Mayo Clinic also said it was getting rid of like 1% of its staff that aren't vaccinated yet. So, I mean, some companies and employers are doing it. Some um, some cities and states are doing this, but yeah, there's this big federal rule that would probably move the needle for a lot of people um, who aren't vaccinated yet. And uh, yeah, its fate is in the hands of essentially three Supreme Court judges. <laughs> Did, so wait, the, the idea is that the the sort of um, it goes on left right grounds, like the most Supreme Court cases that the liberals are like, yeah, we believe in society and the libertarians are like, no, it's got to be an individual choice or is that how it's going to yeah, break down? I think so. I mean, from what um, the people I spoke to, the three liberals will uphold the mandates, the three super I and mean, the rest of the people on the Supreme Court are conservative right wing types. The three most, Thomas, Alito and Gorsuch probably vote against the mandates for sure. Then there's this like, they're not moderate, but like the middle people who aren't like totally right is um, the chief justice. Amy Coney Barrett. Amy it's all Coney down to Barrett. you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, who's the third? Barrett, Kavanaugh. Oh, Kavanaugh. Another. He's apparently the fate of the vaccine mandate is in Judge Kavanaugh's hands. If we, I suppose the thing with the, you know, so-called vaccine mandates is if you do have large individual employers deciding they're going to do this anyway, um, independent of what the, the 
the federal government might require. I'm fascinated when they get challenged on the basis of like, well, no, you're not allowed because it's, you know, there's no federal mandate to do that. I'm like, are you for individual rights <laughs> and in states' rights and employers' rights, or are you just anti right, what, if, if the federal mandate gets <laughs> knocked down, where does that leave the state mandates? It doesn't affect the state. It shouldn't affect the state mandates because the case at the court is all about federal and executive overreach, and the court oh, has, already, okay. has already upheld mandates at the state level. So, and, and what they're arguing, or should be arguing, I haven't been watching because I've been talking to y'all, but um, they should be arguing, does, you know, does OSHA... The federal agency who made this rule have the authority because, you know, they didn't get Congress to sp- explicitly say they had the authority to do this. Even though it's in the statute authorizing OSHA, it says, like, if there is an emergency and a health risk, like, you guys can do a rule real quick. We are truly so doomed for it's, the next pandemic. It's like, just so <laughs> it's just Or even the present me. one, for that matter. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I've already decided that we're doomed in this pandemic, but for future generations, good luck to you all if 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 humanity. I mean, the Biden OSHA said <laughs> when it made the rule, this could save a quarter million lives, and that was in November, pre Omicron. Just and I think just when Delta was kind of getting like revved up, um, so probably could have saved a lot more lives. Vaccines save lives, people, especially with Omicron. If you're vaccinated, it's a good good way of saving your life. Stacy, what's your number? My number is 10 million, which is the prize money that will be available to the golfers of the next U.S. Women's Open, which is like the biggest ever purse available to women golfers, because like all other athletes who compete in women's sports, they tend to be better, but still somehow paid less <laughs> um, compared to the athletes who compete in the men's sports. So this this is happening because there's a new sponsor, ProMedica Health System, who's like, yeah, no, we're, we're just going to we're just going to pay more. Um, we're going to hopefully make this um, a more attractive purse. Golf is a sport. And I say this is the perspective of somebody who on the island that I grew up in, if you played golf, you were 100 percent one of the one percent <laughs> um, in, in the country because to have access to golf courts, to have access to equipment, to fly around to tournaments. It was just, it was off limits to most people. Um, And I know that there are folks in the US who have been long trying to change the perception of golf as like a purely elitist sport. And frankly, just having bigger purses at the, obviously at the open level, but all, all the way on down is a really helpful way to do that. Because when generally the higher Higher prize money tends to correlate with more sponsor interest. Um, so you are able to get better sponsors because they're like, oh, people are taking women's sports seriously now. I can take women's sports more seriously too. It's going to be easier for you to get sponsors. I, I always think about this at the very, again, at the very local context. Um, when I was in high school, I played for my high school's football soccer team. We were terrible, um, but we were like, it was, it was not a good team, but it was impossible for us to ever get sponsors. Whereas the equally average um men's football team at adjacent high schools just had local businesses like throwing money and stuff at them constantly and it was just a source of endless frustration are there like high school golf teams i know nothing about golf (laughs) you know that surprises me i feel like you'd be a person who has a lot of friends who play golf um i don't know if they're high school yes no i have one friend who plays golf a lot but he is he is definitely part of the 0.1 (laughs) percent Yes, um, they, there are certain, I remember a couple of years ago looking at something golf related. It was around like when Tiger Woods was a person we talked about more regularly. And some people choose their private schools based on how good the, col- the golf team is. They have teams. Private schools wow. for their children. Mm-hmm. 
You see, this is great. This is why we need you on this show, Stacey, because you you educate us <laughs> about the most unexpected things, like private school golf teams. You know, I I did not know that you were an expert in such things, but I I don't know. I feel like I I I'm I'm very sad because you're leaving, and it's a a bad way to start off 2022. But I'm happy that you made it through at least this first episode of the year. Do uh, we are going to keep you on the email alias for a little bit while everyone writes in and says, come back, <laughs> Stacey, please come back. Quit your job at Bloomberg just so you can stay on Slate Money. And um, yeah, do that. Write in, say, say thanks to Stacey, who's been the best host that Slate Money has ever had. And thanks as well to Shana Roth for producing this international show. And yeah, we will be back next week with even more Slate Money. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.